Well, tell us all about it, Bob. They call her Lazy Daisy Man. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Thursday, November 30th, 2017. I'm Aaron Edwards. Today on the show, Anne Derek Gaillot examines TV's reluctance to react to Trump. And Gabby Del Valle says goodbye to Tumblr's daddy. Here's the dispatch. Culture. Turn on any late night show and you'll probably find the host gleefully talking about the hellish Trump presidency. Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, I know you're upset, but maybe now is not the time to be implying that someone's kid should go to jail for what their dad did. In fact, on Sunday, Trump hit the golf course for the fifth day in a row. Even the Masters only last four days. Yes, even the happy-go-lucky Jimmy Fallon has come around to political commentary as his ratings have collapsed. Do you see this? Trump just went on Twitter and bragged about a poll showing he has a 46% approval rating. <laughs> really, that's like posting a math quiz in the fridge where you got a D plus. You go, <laughs> I spelled my name right. I spelled my name right. On the other hand, a lot of scripted television hasn't figured out how to address Trump. The more realistic sitcoms and dramas that used to reflect the world we live in have, in some ways, become fantasies themselves. Because they present a reality where the horror of Trump is still largely abstract. A reality only inhabited by the rich. I'm sorry, I don't want a mustache for the apocalypse. Mustaches are going to be currency soon. On Broad City, Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer censored the president's name like profanity and used his presence as a goofy plot point. Okay, okay it's happening. We are T-minus 60 seconds until Trump is inaugurated. I can't believe it. Oh, my God. The eighth episode of She's Gotta Have It, Spike Lee's new Netflix series, opened with a post-election day montage of anti-Trump headlines, protest signs, and graffiti before pivoting to a completely unrelated plot. Stephen King couldn't conceive it, and your pub, you can't believe it, that a clown got the nuclear code. It's got sly references to current events slipped throughout the rest of the show, but they never become the focus. The current season of Curb Your Enthusiasm reportedly began filming the day after the 2016 election, but the administration hasn't been mentioned in the show so far. In October, creator Larry David addressed the elephant in the room by telling the crowd at the Vanity Fair summit, I think we should stop talking about him. Less than two years before, David had shouted, you're racist, at the then-future president during his opening monologue as the host of SNL. And we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. You're a racist! Who the hell is, I? Uh, I knew this was gonna happen. 2017's most Trump-dedicated scripted program was American Horror Story Cult, which aired on FX from September to November. It takes place in the wake of the 2016 election, as one community emerges, divided and beset by extremist groups and a gang of murderous clowns. Since election night, it has just all been getting so much worse. An aspiring cult leader wears a mask made of Cheeto dust in the season premiere. It's an obvious reference to Trump's radioactive tan, but as befitting a show that traffics in cheap thrills, Colt relied on simplification, reducing the fears felt by millions in real life. The immediate threat posed by Trump is a relatively recent novelty to political order. Still early this year, it was expected that TV would have something to say about our new political reality and their fictional ones. Not everyone shared the same amount of risk for speaking out. 
Both Issa Rae, creator of Insecure, and Aziz Ansari, creator of Master of None, intentionally left Trump out of the most recent seasons of their shows. As young creators of color, they certainly were bigger targets. More than one commentator has noticed how Trump specifically seems to revel in calling out Black people who criticize him, like Colin Kaepernick, Steph Curry, and LeVar Ball. Blackish creator Kenya Barris went the opposite route. In a November 2016 interview with NPR Weekend Edition host Rachel Martin, Barris said he felt the election had suddenly changed his show, heightening the cast and crew's responsibility to encourage open dialogue among viewers. We have to dig in deeper and stay later and have more real conversations and argue amongst ourselves more and really bring our emotions to the surface and really say things that people want to hear have said. We have to do that more. The election happened a quarter of the way into the show's third season, but remarkably, nine weeks later, Blackish was one of the first shows to address Trump in their January 11th episode. In it, the Johnson family experiences the heartbreak and confusion many felt after the election, each member coping in their own way. You think I'm not sad that Hillary didn't win? That I'm not terrified about what Trump's about to do? I'm used to things not going my way. I'm sorry that you're not, and it's blowing your mind. So excuse me if I get a little offended because I didn't see all of this outrage when everything was happening to all of my people since we were stuffed on boats in chains. Later episodes didn't deal as extensively with Trump as that one did, though the president does come up every so often. Jonathan Gray, a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, agreed that shows were shying away from Trump. There are a lot of satire shows now that are doing it on a nightly basis. Um, so whereas, you know, like even just a decade ago, it was really just Colbert and Stewart. You've now got, you know, a whole sort of ecosystem of satire. And, you know, between them and SNL and so forth, I wonder if some writers just sort of feel that, like, you know, that's being taken care of elsewhere. I'd also, you know, I'd imagine that some writers feel that, that you know, don't feed the troll. <laughs> Last year, it was reported that Law & Order SVU was planning an episode about a businessman turned presidential candidate who was accused of sexual misconduct. Eventually, the episode was spiked. Cast member Ice-T revealed in March that the show felt the episode fell short in accurately capturing the feeling of the time, when the joke of Trump as president was bizarrely coming true. With a new year and the first anniversary of Trump's inauguration approaching, it seems that the great show of the Trump era, despite this year's attempts, might still be ahead of us. And Derek Gaillot is a staff writer here at The Outline. On Monday, Tumblr founder and CEO David Karp announced he was leaving the company after 10 years. In many ways, Karp had a similar background to other successful startup founders. Gabby Del Valle took the occasion of Karp's resignation to look back on what made him the prototypical Silicon Valley founder and why his fans gave him a creepy nickname. Hi, Gabby. Hi, Aaron. What was David Karp's nickname? I wouldn't say it was his nickname in his personal life. But on Tumblr, for some reason, a lot of people called him Daddy. Daddy. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the weirdest thing is that most people who called him daddy were like, like young teens. Mm. Um, there was this thing, this like trend on Tumblr in like 2010, I would say, that people would post pictures of David Carp, and they would be like, whenever a picture of daddy comes up, you have to reblog it. And it would get like hundreds of thousands of reblogs. It was super weird. I would say out of every social network that has endured, Tumblr is probably the weirdest. It's very much like a place for rabid fandom in the way that like Facebook or even Twitter is not. And I think that's a big part of it. When I was researching this, because the whole thing that's like rule number one of Tumblr is a picture. If a picture of him comes up, you have to reblog it. The other rule number one of Tumblr, there's a lot of contention apparently about what the actual first rule of Tumblr is, but the other one is you don't talk about Tumblr. So it was very much like people's like secret place for their secret desires. So daddy is moving on and <laughs> <laughs> and we have we have 10 years of, of Tumblr under his reign to look at. But what about David Karp and his ascent is interesting. He did the things on the startup checklist. He dropped out of high school. He didn't go to college. He focused on building his company and like single-mindedly, like against all odds, managed to sell his little startup for $1 billion to Yahoo. Everyone focused on how despite all the money that he made, he was so down to earth. He wore hoodies. He was a minimalist. Um, one profile called him Spartan. It was very much like a cult of personality thing. And on Tumblr... Before he sold the company to Yahoo, everyone praised him for making it a place for for artists and like a a place for things that aren't necessarily accepted by the mainstream, which mostly means that Tumblr was a place for porn. What was David Karp's perception of his own company? He really focused on how Tumblr was a place for free speech. My guest tonight is a high school dropout who sold his internet startup for $1.1 billion. He went on the Colbert Report right after the whole porn thing happened in 2013, and he was talking about how he doesn't want to censor tasteful artists like Terry Richardson. It's porn central. There's a ton of porn It's got there. everything. Not No, there's, it's there's a, lot, a lot, there's a more lot than of, that. A lot of there's tape, a, there's, there's a lot, lot of, of everything. There's a lot of everything on there. Is that going to stay on there? Uh, look, we, we've uh, taken a, a pretty hard line on... Uh, freedom of speech, supporting our users, creation, whatever that looks like, and it's just not something that we want to police. When you have somebody like uh, Terry Richardson or any number of you know very talented photographers posting tasteful photography, I don't want to have to go in there to uh, draw the line between this photo and this behind uh, uh, behind the scenes photo of Lady Gaga and like her nip, like. It's just not. I'm sorry. Not a, I'm sorry. I'm not sure. I think we might have to bleep that. I'm not sure. <laughs> and in a 2013 interview, he basically admitted that he had no idea how Tumblr worked at that point. He said, I have a, rude, I have a very rudimentary understanding of how Tumblr actually works these days. And also, I'm not super passionate about how we run the company. Is Tumblr still relevant in 2017? I think it has a really self-contained niche audience. Um, like, there was this huge controversy recently in the the Hamilton community the Hamilton fandom on Tumblr because one person who writes fan fiction about Hamilton that is apparently like an alternate universe where everyone 
is in high school and also they all are HIV positive. That person was pretending to be HIV positive so they could write this. Um, I don't, and then the person who who outed her was um, apparently writing fan fiction about cannibal mermaids that also were the characters of Hamilton. So yeah, it's like a very insular. That's just one example. <laughs> there's there's people. There's there are very active Tumblr users. <laughs> there um, are people and they are using <laughs> Tumblr still. So. Yeah. The people on Tumblr are very dedicated to the things that they are dedicated about. All right, well, maybe we should revive our Tumblrs because we both have a lot of interesting things to say, clearly. (laughs) Gabby Del Valle is a staff writer here at The Outline. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Aaron. That's it for The Dispatch. Remember, Adrian Jeffries and I are here four days a week, Monday through Thursday. So make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Aaron Edwards. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday.